Today's scripture reading is from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, which can be found on, the pa- on page 996 of the Black Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible or you know someone who would need one, please feel free to take the Bible home with you. It is our gift to you. Again, that's chapter 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The word of the Lord. Children between two and eight years old are dismissed to go to a children's church. If you're new here, uh, you can just take your children over there. In the foyer, there'll be somebody to direct you from there. We are going to finish our sermon series today. We're going to finish looking at 2 Timothy. And the next week, we're starting a new sermon series on the life of Abraham from Genesis. So you can start reading ahead, Genesis 12 through 22. And the name of that, the title of that series is When Grace Breaks In. When Grace Breaks In. We'll be looking at a life of a person who was deeply affected by God's grace. What does it mean? How does it change us? What struggles we still deal with even as we are affected by God's grace? So that's starting next week. It's a great sermon series to invite your friends to. It will be helpful to believers, but also very accessible to unbelievers who want to learn more about the gospel of Jesus. Well, today we're we're finishing up our look at the life of Timothy. We've looked at him as sort of as an example of somebody who's gone through various stages of spiritual growth. So we've looked at his conversion when he first encountered Jesus. We've looked at uh, his initial growth being nurtured by Paul, by another more mature believer. And we've looked at, uh, last week, at particular struggles of Christian maturity. What what do we struggle with as we have sort of grown up spiritually? And today we conclude this series by looking at Timothy's ability to help others grow. So to use our organic metaphor, the sprout has been nurtured to maturity and is now bearing fruit itself. But the question we've been asking is, am I growing? Am I growing in Christ? That's been our application for the whole series. Am I growing? Which stage are you on? We're all different stages of the journey. Which stage are you on? What's your next step? How are you personally growing in Christ? What do you need to address in your life? Now, for most of us, we need to consider how we mature believers need to be helping other people grow. At some point on your spiritual growth, you have to consider how your life affects other people's lives. 
How are we helping other people grow? How are we bearing fruit for Christ? So in our text today, we see Paul, the apostle, the seasoned veteran of Christian ministry, very fruitful Christian himself, given a charge to Timothy, to his spiritual son, to his protege. Paul is at the very end of his life. He's in prison. He doesn't think he's going to get out alive. And so he wants to make sure that Timothy, this young pastor, still somewhat new to the ministry, will continue on the right path and will remain fruitful and faithful. There's a sense of the apostolic ministry being passed down from Paul to Timothy. It's now Timothy's generation. It's their turn to lead and grow the church. So that's in the background. It's a tender passage. It's a difficult passage in many ways. Paul is hurting because he knows he's leaving, but he's also leaving Timothy, so he wants to impart this final charge to him. So what's the most important thing that Paul believes is for Timothy to keep in mind in order to remain fruitful? There's a clear theme in this charge, in this passage. If Timothy is to help other people grow, if he is to remain fruitful, if he is to fulfill the apostolic ministry, he must preach the word. He must preach the word. That's the central command of our text. Preach the word. Timothy must be ready to preach the word in season and out of season, meaning when it's expected, when it's not expected, in a setting where it's appropriate, in a setting when it's not appropriate. He is to proclaim this word to unbelievers in doing the work of an evangelist. He's also to proclaim this word to believers by reproving and rebuking and exhorting them. Paul tells them there will be difficult times. There will be times when most people will not want to hear the word. They will congregate around teachers that will simply tell them what they want to hear. And so Timothy is to persevere. He's to suffer and endure evil and, and, and opposition and yet to remain faithful to this charge to preach the word. He is to be sober-minded. As one preacher put it, he is to keep his head when everyone else has lost theirs. So when it seems like the whole Christian world has fallen apart and has gone astray, the faithful disciple is to continue to preach the word. Timothy is to be patient. There's patience involved in seeing people grow and be changed by this word. So Paul's charge to Timothy is about staying focused on and committed to the ministry of the word. So if we are to learn how to help other people grow, how to be fruitful in our own lives, we too need to learn about the word and its power to change people. I'd like us to consider our text under three headings. Three headings if you're taking notes. Number one, the transforming word. The transforming word. Number two, the living word. The living word. 
And number three, the final word. The transforming word, the living word, and the final word. You see, Paul is so insistent that Timothy must preach the word because Paul knows that it's the word that changes people. It's the word of God that transforms us. It's the word that brings genuine change into our lives. It's the word that makes people grow. Think about the story of Scripture. In the beginning, God creates everything by speaking. Right? God says, and creation happens. The universe becomes a reality because God speaks it into existence. Creation starts by His word, and then He continues to uphold the universe by the word of His power. Just as it starts, it is upheld by the word of God. God creates human beings in the garden, and He instructs them. He tells them how to live, what to do, what not to do, right? What's important, what's not important. And then this word of God, this instruction, is rejected by the first couple. And because they reject God's word, they lose God's presence. They lose their relationship with God. And now they become under God's judgment. But God still continues to speak even to those who are under his judgment. Remember, he makes a covenant with Abraham. He speaks through the prophets. He calls his people Israel out of Egypt. He continues to communicate with his people. It's God's word that brings us back to God. Ultimately, we need to hear his word to return to him, to be reconciled to him. 1 Peter 1, verse 23, Peter says, You have been born again. What does that mean? You've been changed. Now you've become a different creature. You've become reconciled to God. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. So how do we become saved? How do we get converted? It's through the Word coming into our lives. We believe the word and we are saved. And then as we grow in our maturity, in Hebrews 2, verse 1, it tells us that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. It's the word that keeps us with God. Athanasius was a 4th century African bishop. And he wrote a very important book called on the incarnation of the word, on the incarnation of the word. Athanasius had a particular way of looking at the original sin, that first sin of Adam and Eve. He looked at it as the loss of the knowledge of God by disobeying God's word. Adam's sin changed the trajectory from life to death. Listen to what Athanasius says. He says, For the transgression of the commandment was making them turn back again according to their nature. And as they had at the beginning come into being out of non-existence, so were they now on the way to returning through corruption to non-existence again. The presence and love of the Word had called them into being, 
Inevitably, therefore, when they lost the knowledge of God, they lost existence with it. For it is God alone who exists. Evil is non-being, the negation and antithesis of good. This is what Athanasius is saying, that by rejecting God's word, we reject God. God being the source of life. And because God is the source of life, without God there is no life. And so when we lose the knowledge of God, we lose the very life with it. We have been brought into being by God's word, that, that creative word. And so without God's word, we begin disintegrating. We begin to perpetually return to non-existence. Instead of life by God's word, we experience death and corruption without God's word. Now, it's God's word that brings life. It's his word that changes people. God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's, it pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's how powerful God's word is. So do you see now why Paul tells Timothy to preach the word? It's the word that changes us. It's the word that produces growth. And by returning God's word to the people, we bring life to them. This passage isn't just about preachers. I mean, it's so easy to read this and say, well, of course, Paul is saying to a pastor, preach the word. So you must stay faithful to the Christian preaching. That's true, but that's one application. To preach the word simply means to proclaim it, to proclaim the word. And we're all called to do that. All of us are engaged in this proclamation of God's word to people. It can happen from the pulpit, certainly. It can happen at a ball game. It happens over the fence. It happens at a small group. It happens over a cup of coffee. We are to proclaim the word because the word gives life and it changes other people. Now Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. That just means proclaiming the word to those who are not familiar with it. It's to introduce God's word to people who are not believers. That's evangelism. If the word brings life to those who are stuck in corruption and death, why would we not proclaim it to them? Whenever I think about the logic of evangelism, there are people who need to hear the word that gives life, and I have the word to proclaim to them. I am I'm terribly convicted. During the, the interview candidating for this job at Chatham, I told them that I was a coward when it comes to evangelism. Let me tell you, they were paying attention, <laughs> the search team. <laughs> that came up a few times later. But I was being honest. It's hard. Many of us would identify with that. It is, for many of us, we prefer to be socially acceptable, to be socially comfortable, rather than giving the life-giving word to those who are perishing. That means I am not as deeply affected by the word myself. That's what it means. So I need a deeper experience of the gospel myself to be bolder in evangelism. But the logic of it 
makes perfect sense and it's tremendously convicting. If I see someone in need and if I believe that they are in need and I have the solution for their problem, and if the problem is as big as life or death, why would I not freely give it to them? Right? It makes perfect sense until, until cowardice creeps in. There's, a, there's an atheist who spoke about this particular issue. Penn Gillette is he's the half of the Penn and Teller comic group. And he is himself an atheist. He admits it freely. He had an encounter with an evangelical Christian who witnessed to him. And he said, this is what an atheist said about evangelism. Right? He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect them at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. He gets the logic of it, doesn't he? It's hard to argue against the logic of it. Evangelism is one application, perhaps even the main application of the command to love our neighbor. Jesus said the whole law is reduced to th two things, two commands, right? Love your God, love your neighbor. To love your neighbor is to give them what they need, to help them in their need. And if their need is spiritual, is there, if their need is to know God, to be saved, and I have the solution for that, if I don't do it, I don't love them. If I love them, I will do it. Most of us will not struggle at all with taking someone to the emergency room after an accident or an injury or somebody gets sick. We don't think twice about getting in our car and just rushing to the hospital. And yet, and I'm speaking to myself more than I'm speaking to you now, so many of us, we hold back on sharing the gospel with people. Now, if I love my neighbor, and if I understand that it's the word that gives life, I will do the work of an evangelist. And as I do it, I will do it for the neighbor, and I will do it for God, because it's his word that needs to get to his people. As we do it, we need to be patient. It's really easy for us to say, well, I've got to get people saved. But that's not our job. Because we don't get people saved. We can't change people's hearts. But the Word can. So our job is to share the Word with them. To present the Word in such a way that it makes sense, that it's appropriate, that they understand it, that they're able to wrestle with it, that we can be there to help them understand it further. And then you leave it up to God for His Word to do the work. One of the best things I've ever learned in ministry was this very short phrase that I have to remind myself all the time. Let the, work, let the Word do its work. Let the, let the Word do its work. 
It's God working through his word. It's not me. I can't produce any change in anyone. Sometimes it takes a long time for the word to start working. Let me tell you a story about Luke Short. Luke Short was 18th century New England farmer. And one time he was sitting in his field and he was thinking about his long life. At that point he was over 100 years old. Think 103. He was thinking about his life and kind of evaluating his long life. And then he recalled a sermon he had heard as a boy in England before he sailed for America. And he was meditating on the words that he had heard so long ago. And he was converted to Christ. This is a true story. A farmer thinking on the sermon he had heard as a boy, was converted to Christ. And so on his gravestone, the epitaph read, He lies a babe in grace, aged three years, who died according to nature, aged 106. He lived 103 years without Christ, and then... At the end of his long life, he was converted by the word that was implanted in his mind 80-some years ago. It's amazing. You see, because God's word works. There was a faithful preacher who proclaimed it. We actually know the name of the preacher, John Flavel. He preached to this boy. And then the word that was in his heart for 80-some years bore fruit. And the man got converted. Remember Isaiah 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, make it and bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's Word is powerful. It changes people. It produces growth. It converts people. And so we are to preach that Word. We are to proclaim that Word to unbelievers so they hear what they need to be saved. We also are supposed to proclaim that Word to unbelievers. I'm sorry, to believers. It's important for us to not just limit that proclamation to unbelievers. We are supposed to proclaim it to believers as well. We are to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort each other. That simply means that we're applying that word to other believers. We rebuke, that means to warn. We reprove, that means to confront and expose sin. We exhort, that means to encourage, to put into practice what they hear. And we do all of that to bring life to other believers. In verse 3, in our passage, Paul talks about the word as sound teaching. Now, most of your Bibles will probably have a footnote that translates it also as healthy teaching. Sound teaching means healthy teaching. The word is healthy, meaning that if we forget the word, we get sick. If we remind each other of the word, we get healthier, we grow, we get stronger. 
how do we keep each other growing and, and thriving in Christ? It's by proclaiming the word to one another. We're to encourage each other. We're, we're supposed to rebuke each other. We're supposed to reprove each other. Now, Sunday is an obvious way to do it, right? We gather, we listen to a sermon from Scripture, the Word is being preached, but it happens at family devotions. It happens in your conversations with your co-workers if you work with, with Christians, as some of you do. It happens when we're doing ministry together and we're encouraging one another. It happens when we're working on a project together. And so we get time to share the Word with one another in season and out of season. This is in season, right? The sermon time on Sunday. But out of season as well, we are to preach the word to each other. Without the word, we get sick. It is the word that keeps people healthy and growing. Now, that's the transforming power of the word. Let me address something a little more sensitive. What is the word? Because I haven't defined it. I've just been saying the word, assuming that we're on the same page, but we're not on the same page, probably. What does it mean to preach the word? What is the word? What do you think I mean by the word? What do you think Paul means by the word? I would venture a guess that for a lot of us here, at least some of us here, we would say the Bible, right? The Bible is God's word. The Bible is to be preached. The Bible is to be proclaimed. The Word is God's Word, His book, the Scriptures. I don't think that's what Paul thinks. That's not what I mean by the Word, for sure. The Word is God's message, right? It's His revelation. It's the knowledge of Himself that we had lost in the garden. It's contained in the Scriptures, but it's not the same as the Scriptures. What is the supreme revelation of God? What is the, the final message? What is the ultimate revelation of God? Or should I say who, right? It's Jesus. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the ultimate message from God. Thus, He is the ultimate Word of God. Life comes from the living Word, not the written Word. Life comes from the living Word. Listen to Athanasius again. He says, The first fact that you must grasp is this. The renewal of creation has been wrought by the selfsame Word who made it in the beginning. There is thus no inconsistency between creation and salvation, for the one Father has employed the same agent for both works, effecting the salvation of the world through the same Word who made it in the beginning. Athanasius is saying the way God created the world through Jesus is the same way God is redeeming the world through Jesus. It's the living Word that is our salvation. The universe was created because God, the source of life, extended Himself. While God is separate from creation, creation is not separate from God. Creation is an extension of who God is. It's His life being poured into something else, reflected in other beings. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. 
There are two persons. There are three persons, actually. And the Word was God. The living Word, God the Son, who gave life to creation in the beginning, is the same Word that was proclaimed in the manger, on the cross, and in the empty tomb. The living Word, the Son of God, restores us to God and reverses the trajectory of our existence and brings life to us. Friends, I believe in the Bible. I believe the Bible is an inerrant Word of God. I believe it has absolute authority over our life and doctrine. And yet, I also know its limitations. The Bible contains the revelation of God, but the ultimate revelation of God is Jesus. The Bible is important because Jesus is important. This is His book. And so we are to remain faithful to the Bible because we are faithful to Christ. If you study the New Testament, you will find that the word, this phrase, the word, or the word of truth, or the word of God, really means the apostolic message about Jesus. It means the gospel. The story of Jesus, the living word, who came into the world to save sinners. For example, Peter, 1 Peter 1.25, says, This word is the good news that was preached to you. Can't get much clearer than that. This word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. Ephesians 1.13, Paul says, You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. They specify what they mean by the word. And they don't mean all of Scripture. They mean the gospel that is certainly contained in the Scriptures, which is why we hold on to the authority and the inerrancy of it. But it is the word of the gospel, it's the word of Jesus that saves, that changes, that makes people grow. I want to remind you, and I know this is a sensitive area to us Bible-believing Christians, but I want to remind us that just to preach the Bible is not enough. Just like to know the Bible is not the same as to know God. You can know the Bible and be a stranger to God. You can preach the Bible and not preach the Word. I was at a major, major pastor's conference a few years ago, and it was a very well-known speaker, a very well-known pastor, who was given the message, and I listened to the whole message, and there were lots of good things that he said. The message was biblical. It was from the text of Scripture. The message had lots of application for other pastors. It was helpful. And yet, I walked away with my heart empty because Jesus was not mentioned. Jesus wasn't mentioned, not even in passing. As a believer, I needed to hear about Jesus. Other stuff was helpful, but I needed Jesus because it's the living word that has the power to change me. And if I want to grow, I don't need more information, not primarily. I need more Jesus. And when the preacher doesn't give it to me, as a believer, I walk away unchanged. This morning, in many churches in our community, in this very community, the book is opened, but the word isn't preached. The written word is honored, but the living word is not preached. 
There are many churches where people love the Bible and they don't know Jesus. Let this come as a correction to us, people of Chatham Bible Church, biblical Christians, Bible-believing Christians. Let it come to us as a challenge. We can open the book without exposing people to Jesus. It is possible. In many places, it is likely that it would happen. Somebody defined the Christian sermon as one for which the preacher would get kicked out of synagogue or a mosque. There are many sermons preached this morning that would play just as well in a synagogue or a mosque because Jesus is not mentioned. What gives offense to others? Jesus. If you don't mention him, we can talk about all sorts of things that we all agree on. The goodness of God, the moral life, the need for reconciliation. All those things are right and they're true. But if Jesus is not at the center of that sermon, it's not a Christian sermon. And that word doesn't change people. The word of information does not change. But the living word that comes alive through the written word and is preached to us, whether it's from the pulpit or over a cup of coffee, that's who changes us. It's the living word. It's Jesus who comes into our lives and he changes us. So when we do the work of an evangelist, right, let's apply it. When we talk to others who don't believe in Jesus, please don't try to convince them of the truth of the Bible. Because if you convince them of the truth of the Bible, but Jesus is not part of the conversation, you've achieved nothing. They're not changed. But if you convince them of the truth of Jesus, they'll believe in the truth of the Bible. Because having trusted Jesus, they will also trust that the book that Jesus uses is a good book for us to use. But if Jesus is not the point of that conversation, there is no point to that conversation. You're not helping them. You're not loving them. They need the living word. They need Jesus to change. As we're talking to other Christians, talking to each other at church, even this morning, I need to tell you about Jesus. You need to tell me about Jesus. You need to remind me of the gospel. I need to remind you of the gospel. How do I help you if you're caught in sin? How do I help you return? By reminding you of what Jesus has done for you. How can you sin when Jesus died and rose for you? How can I warn you this morning? I can warn you by reminding you who Jesus is, how beautiful he is, how glorious it is to live with him, so be careful not to drift away from that. Focus on that. How can I exhort you and encourage you to live the Christian life? Not by telling you how to do it. That's helpful sometimes. But reminding you why you're doing this. For Jesus' sake. As a response to his great work for you. That's the stuff that changes us. That's what gives us a new nature at first. It's that gospel that breaks into your life and you embrace it by faith and you realize that you're a new creature now because the same word that built all this, that created all this, is now rebuilding your life. 
He's given you a new nature. He's the Creator Himself who's given you a new heart. That's how we help people grow. It's by telling them about Jesus, by explaining to them what Jesus is like, what He's done, what He demands of us. If He's at the center of those conversations, change happens, growth happens. So how can you, as a mature believer, help other people grow? You are to tell them about Jesus. You are to preach the word, to proclaim the word of the gospel to them. Now, we're going to finish with the final word. This word that transforms is the living word, is Jesus. And there's a final word we need to consider. Look at verse 1. Paul prefaces his charge to Timothy with the following. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. He's saying, I want you to focus on the word. Why? Because Jesus is going to come to judge the living and the dead. The context of this charge is the coming judgment. You see, the final word will be spoken. We're all on these trajectories now, either towards life or towards death. And maybe you're so early on in that trajectory that it doesn't feel all that different. But eventually, it'll come to a head. Eventually, a final word will be spoken where the trajectories cannot be reversed anymore. When Jesus returns, He will usher His kingdom and He will say that final word, which will either be a word of welcome, to say you've been on this trajectory of life, and so welcome into the life of your Master. Or, there'll be a word of judgment. Word of judgment saying you've been on this trajectory of death, and I'm going to let go as you fall towards eternal punishment. That's coming. The final word will be spoken by Jesus. And so when we think about this charge to us to proclaim the gospel, to, to preach the word to others, there is gravity to it. There is urgency to it. The final word is about to be spoken. Richard Baxter, the old Puritan, said, I preached as a dying man to dying men. Preach with urgency. He knew judgment is coming. So he preached as a dying man to dying men. So we are to proclaim the gospel as dying people to dying people. So let me apply this and let me do the work of an evangelist. Which trajectory are you on? Have you rejected God's word, much like Adam and Eve in the garden, and severed yourself from the source of all life? If there's no God in your life, there's no life in your life. If there's no God, there's no life-given energy to keep you alive. You're dying slowly. And it's going to get worse and worse until the final word is spoken. Everything that is opposite of God is now yours. Death, destruction, and despair into eternity. 
Maybe you're on the other trajectory. Have you accepted God's word in Jesus? Well, in that case, everything that is God's is now yours. Life, love, and joy in eternity. Which path are you on? The word of Jesus comes to you now. And it confronts you now. Will you respond to it by believing in Jesus and accepting that word that comes to you, the word of life to you? Or are you going to reject it and remain on the trajectory towards eternal death? We come to the table and we proclaim the gospel until he returns, right? In light of the final word that is yet to come, knowing that it's coming, knowing the word that's been given to us already in Jesus and his death and resurrection, we come to the table to reflect on that word, to receive it anew, to rest in it, to share it with others. So as you come to this table, what do you see? You see the word of the gospel. His body broken for your sins. His blood spilled to give you hope in the new covenant. Friend, do you belong at this table? If you're moving towards life, if you receive this word, this is your feast. This is to help you grow because the word is shared through these means now. If you don't belong, if you don't believe in Jesus, don't come to the table. This is not for you. And yet Jesus is for you. Take Jesus. Take him now. Accept his word of life coming to you. Let me pray. And then as we sing, we'll come forward and take communion. You're welcome to take it right here up front. There are three tables here. Or you can take it back to your seat if you need more time to reflect. That's fine. Do it the way it's, it's, help, it's most helpful to you. But as you do it, you reflect on the word that comes to us in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you as the giver of life, as the creator and sustainer of everything. We praise you because without you, there is nothing left. And even though we have walked away from you, you haven't walked away from us. And you continue to speak. You continue to give your word to us through the prophets and the covenants and your kings and your apostles and supremely in Jesus. And so we remember today, remember your revelation in your son, the one who was born, the remaining completely God, becoming completely human, two natures in one person, living a life of obedience, fulfilling your law perfectly, suffering and dying for our sins, dying a shameful, torturous death, the death we deserved and worse, yet Jesus dying, being buried, and on the third day rising again, and with him bringing life to us, saying, by my death, I have conquered your death. By this resurrection, I have a life to offer to you, and now you don't have to be afraid of death. The trajectory has been reversed, and now with every step, we're moving closer to the fullness of life with God. Father, we confess that as believers, we often 
we often forget what that word did for us and is doing for us, what the living word means to us as believers. And when we forget, it's very difficult for us to share it with others. So we pray now at the table to be reminded of it. And so we confess our cowardice. We confess our inadequacy. We confess our fear. Lord, help us. Help us to proclaim the gospel with all the urgency and gravity it deserves. Because we love our neighbor and because we love you. May your Holy Spirit help us even now increase our faith at this table. Feed us, nurture our faith at this table by your Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's do that together.